Hey, que paso gente, it's your boy Balon, and you're tuned into another episode of Chocast, also known as the Chicano Podcast, and it is being brought to you by Steve Garcia and Chicano. So real quickly, I'm going to go ahead and um, put in my earphones microphone, whatever, and I'm going to go ahead and um, read this speech that I really like, I mean, I've liked this speech for some time now, and um, I just want to just go ahead and put it out there to where people can um, actually get a hold of it real quick, just by listening to, uh, you know, my podcast, I'm going to go ahead and start out with, um, this is a little bit about uh, President JFK, um, April 27th, 1961. He was at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. And, um, you know, he actually... uh, Wrote a lot of stuff. So, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing. Um, And I'll tell you where JFK actually starts to get uh, serious on the part that I really want to read. But I'm going to read this whole article. Um, It says, the president and the press address... Before the American Newspaper Publishers Association on April the 27, 1961. Uh, you can actually listen to this speech um, at the jfklibrary.org. Um, I already told you where it's at. I already told you the date. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate very much your generous invitation to be here tonight. You bear heavy responsibility these days in an article... Um, I read some time ago reminded me of how particular um, the burdens of present day events bear upon your profession. You may remember that the that in 1851, the New York Herald Tribune, under the sponsorship and publishing of Horace Greeley, employed as its London correspondent an obscure journalist by the name of Karl Marx. We're told that foreign correspondent Marx Stone broke and with a family ill and undernourished constantly appealed to Greeley and managing editor Charles Dana for an increase in his munificent salary of $5 per installment, a salary which he in angles ungratefully labeled the lousiest petty burgoy's cheating. But when all his financial appeals were refused, Marx looked around for other means of livelihood and fame, eventually terminating his relationship with the Tribune and devoting his talents full-time to the cause of the the cause that would bequeath the world and seeds of Leninism, Stalinism, revolution in the Cold War. If only the capitalistic New York newspaper had treated him more kindly, if only Marx had remained a foreign correspondent, history might have been different, and a hope And I hope all publishers will bear this lesson in mind the next time they receive a poverty-stricken appeal for a small increase 
in the expense count from an obscure newspaper man. I've selected the, I've selected it the, as the title of my remarks tonight, the president and the press. Some may suggest that would be more naturally worded the president versus the press, but those are not my sentiments tonight. It is true, however, that when a well-known diplomat from another country demanded recently that our State Department repudiate certain newspaper attacks on his colleague, it was unnecessary for us to reply that this administration was not responsible for the press, for the press had already made it clear that it was not responsible for this administration. Nevertheless, my purpose here tonight is not to deliver the usual assault on the so-called one-party press. On the contrary, in recent months, I have rarely heard any complaints about political bias in the press except from a few Republicans, nor is it my purpose tonight to discuss or defend the televising of president press, presidential press conferences. I think it is highly beneficial to have some 20 million Americans regularly sit in on the conferences to observe, if I may say so, the incisive, the intelligent, and the courteous qualities displayed by your Washington correspondents, nor finally are these remarks intended to examine the proper degree of privacy which the press should allow to any president and his family. In the last few months, your White House reporters and photographers have been attending church services with regularity that has surely done with them no harm. On the other hand, I realize that your staff and wire service photographers may be complaining that they do not enjoy the same green privileges at the local golf courses that they once did. It is true that my predecessors did not object as I do to pictures of one's golfing skill in action, but neither of the other hand did he ever being a secret service man. My topic tonight is more sober one of concern to publishers as well as editors. I want to talk about our common responsibilities in the face of a common danger. The events of recent weeks may have helped to illuminate that challenge for some, but the dimensions of its threat have loomed largely on the horizon for many years. Whatever our hopes may be for the future for reducing this threat of living with it, there is no escaping either the gravity or the total of its challenge to our survival and to our security. A challenge that confronts us in accustomed ways in every sphere of human activity. This deadly challenge imposes upon our society two requirements of direct concern both to the press and to the president. Two requirements that may seem almost contradictory in tone. But which must be reconciled and fulfilled if we are to meet this national peril. I refer first to the need for a, a far greater public information and second to the need for a far greater official secrecy. I think this is where it starts. Heed. It shows a one. Uh, Roman numeral one. The very word secrecy is repugnant. Uh, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society, and we are, as people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed 
the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is a little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. All right, so um, I am going to go ahead and restart uh, this. I mean, it's so badass. It, it doesn't matter if you uh, rehear a few couple of words. But, um, yeah, I'm just going to start that one paragraph over. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies to secret olds, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation and our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that is in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. But I, but I do ask every publisher, every editor, and every newsman in the nation to re-examine his own standards and to recognize the nature of our country's peril. In time of war, the government and the press have customarily joined in an effort based largely on self-discipline to prevent unauthorized disclosures to the enemy in time of clear and present danger. The courts have held that even the privileged rights of the First Amendment must yield to the public's need for national security. Today, no war has been declared, and however fierce the struggle may it be, or may be, it may never be declared in the traditional fashion. Our way of life is under attack. Those who make themselves our enemy are advancing around the globe. The survival of our friends is in danger. And yet no war has been declared, no borders have been crossed by marching troops, no muscle, missiles have been fired. If the press is awaiting a declaration of war before it imposes the self-discipline of combat conditions, then I can only say that no war ever posed a greater threat to our security. If you are awaiting a finding of clear and present danger, then I can only say that the danger has never been more clear in its presence has never been more imminent. It requires change in outlook, a change in tactics, a change in missions by the government, by the people, by every businessman or labor leader, and by every newspaper, for we 
are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covert means for expanding its fear of influence on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by the night instead of armies by the day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned. No rumor is printed. No secret is revealed. Its conduct, it conducts the Cold War in short with a wartime discipline no democracy would ever hope or wish to match. Nevertheless, every democracy recognizes the necessary restraints of national security, and the question remains whether those restraints need to be more strictly observed if we are able, if we are to oppose this kind of attack as well as outright invasion. For the facts of the matter are this nation's foes have openly boasted of acquiring through our newspapers information they would otherwise hire agents to acquire through theft, bribery, or espionage. The details of this nation's covert preparations to the country to counter the enemy's covert operations have been available to every newspaper, reader, friend, and foe alike. That the size, the strength, and the location of the nature of our forces and weapons and our plans and strategy for their use have all been pinpointed in the press and other news medias to a degree sufficient to satisfy, satisfy any foreign power and that in at least in one case the publication of details concerning a secret mechanism whereby satellites were followed required its alteration at the expense of considerable time and money. The newspapers which printed these stories were loyal, patriotic, responsible, and well-meaning. We, had we been engaged in open warfare, they undoubtedly would have published such items. But in the absence of open warfare, they recognize only the test of journalism and not the test of national security. And my question tonight is whether additional tests should not now be adopted. The question is for you alone to answer. No public official should answer it for you. No governmental plan should impose its restraints against your will. But I would be failing in my duty to the nation in considering all of the responsibilities that now bear and all of the means at hand to meet those responsibilities if I did not commit this problem to your attention and urge its thoughtful consideration. On many earlier occasions, I have said, and your newspapers have constantly said, that these are times to appeal to every citizen's sense of sacrifice and self-discipline. They call out every citizen to weigh his rights and comfort uh, against his obligations to the common good. I can now not now believe that those citizens who serve in the newspaper business consider themselves exempt from that appeal. I have no intention of establishing a new office of war information to govern the flow of news. I am not suggesting any forms of censorship or any types of security 
classifications. I have no easy answer to the dilemma that I have posed, and I would not seek to impose it if I had one. But I am asking the members of the newspaper profession and the industry in this country to re-examine their own responsibilities to, to consider the degree and the nature of the present danger and to heed the duty of self-restraint which the danger imposes upon us all. Every newspaper now asks itself with respect to every story, is it news? All I suggest is that you add the question, is it in the interest of the national security? And I hope that every group in America, unions and businessmen and public officials at every level will ask the same question of their endeavors and subject their actions to the same exacting tests. And should the press of America consider, recommend, and voluntary assumption of specific news or machinery, I can assure you that we will cooperate wholeheartedly with those recommendations. Perhaps there will be no recommendations. Perhaps there is no answer to the dilemma faced by a free and open society in a cold and secret war. In times of peace, any discussion of this subject and any action that results are both painful and without precedent. But this is a time of peace and peril which knows no precedent in history. It is the unprecedented nature of this challenge that also gives rise to your second obligation, an obligation which I share, and that is our obligation to inform and alert the American people to make certain that they possess all the facts that they need and understand them as well, the perils, the prospects, the purposes of our program, and the choices that we face. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program. For from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am asking your newspapers to support the administration, but I'm asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the people, for I have complete confidence in the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors, for as a wise man once said, an error does not become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility of our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Solon decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment. The only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to assume and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and sentimental not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and opportunities, to indicate our crisis and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news as well as improved transmission it, and it means finally that the government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security and we intend to do it it was early in the 17th century that francis francis bacon 
remarked on three recent inventions already transforming the world. The compass, gunpowder, the printing press. Now the links between the nations first forged by the compass have made us all citizens of the world. The hopes and threats of one becoming the hopes and threats of us all. In that one world's efforts to live together, the evolution of gunpowder to its ultimate limit has warned mankind of its terrible consequences of failure. And so it is the printing press to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap this up. This is actually from the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum in uh, Columbia Point, Boston, Massachusetts. 02125. Uh, they have a phone number, 617-514-1600. Uh, normally, they're open seven days from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can get them on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or Instagram. It's in the National Archives. Um, underneath that has a uh, symbol of, I think, the Freedom of Information Act. Anyways, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap this up. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of um, this particular series of the Chicano Podcast. It is not one of my regular series, but it is a um, ongoing series that I'm going to be doing, uh, you know, with articles and information that I find relevant to um, the political atmosphere and what we may um, or may not uh, be uh, going through, but I might find, uh, you know, importance. Um, especially, you know, with the uh, particular uh, atmosphere or time frame uh, that, you know, we may be in and how it uh, relates, uh, you know, to um, some of the uh, parallel things that I see, uh, you know, in the uh, ecosphere of politics. But yeah, um, like I said, I'm going to go ahead and uh, check on out to the next uh Episode at the watch. The pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night 
of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners, will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day with all of God's children. Be able to sing with new meaning my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. 
from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi. We will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last.